2: the michael reid show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie tuesday morning at the
3: 10th of october good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m this is michael reid on lmfm
2: palestinian israeli conflict is the beginning in the beginning. Now, in this time, is the beginning.
3: Violence has erupted in the Middle East and not for the first time since Israel was established as a
2: state in 1948. 1948 and 1967 and all this time, Israelian killing Palestinian people. Children, women and old women, men and women. And all the refugees camp now killing by Israeli force. By the big bombs, 3,000 pounds. 3,000 pounds for what? For children and women? And who? Now, I, I, don't, have, I, I don't have a gun. I am civil, civil man. Civil. I am, I am, no, I, I don't have gun. I don't have uh, Air Force F-16, F-35, GPU-39. Now, you see it like, like oxygen in the earth. Like oxygen, 6,000 rockets, shilling Gaza, 6,000 rockets. Do you know about where you said all Gaza have guns and uh, military, Hamas, Jihad? I don't know. I see one thing only. Women, children, old women and old. Yeah, I don't know what can I say, but I want to tell all the people in the world Rescue Gaza! Help Gaza! Gaza now under shilling!
3: The bombardment of Gaza intensifies and there is no way out for its people coming under fire from air, sea and imminently land as the Israeli army prepares to invade in retaliation for the October 7th Hamas incursion into Israel. One atrocity many fear will result in an atrocity against innocent Palestinian civilians who wait helplessly in the line of fire for the Israeli reprisal.
2: Please! help Gaza. No way. I don't, I don't know where I can go now. Egypt or Jordan or Syria or Lebanon. Now no place, you can't go to any place now. You can't go. No transportation for any place. Now I am waiting to dead. Now I am, all the people in Gaza waiting to dead.
3: That desperate a- appeal from a man called Mazen Saidam, who was speaking to NBC News. Let's go to the Israeli border. Peter Parr is the executive director of UNICEF Ireland, uh, he's in a man in Jordan. And a very good morning to you, and thank you I- indeed for joining us on the program uh, this morning. Uh, this land offensive uh, seems imminent, uh, and it seems as though the death Toll is going to continue to rise. We've already fourteen hundred Israelis who have died since the seventh of October. Two thousand seven hundred Palestinians have been killed, and a thousand people are, are still missing. How bad do you think this can get?
4: Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, it's already bad, and it's going to get undoubtedly an awful lot worse. I'm afraid to say. I was in Gaza a few weeks ago, and uh, what I witnessed was a pretty dire humanitarian situation there already. And obviously now, the reports from our teams on the ground are very, very disturbing. Uh, at least half a million people, but perhaps one million people, have now left northern Gaza without their, without clothing, uh, they have no shelter food, water, sanitation. They have no place to go. They're sleeping uh, out in the open. Uh, They don't have access to basic necessities. So what we're witnessing right before our eyes, Michael, is an unfolding humanitarian crisis.
3: And what about uh, the UNICEF staff who are in Gaza? Are they also uh, moving southwards?
4: Well, we're extremely concerned for uh, our staff who are placed in various different locations uh, around Gaza, obviously for security uh, uh, considerations. Mike, we're, we're not obviously uh, going into detail about uh, where there are, but we have a substantial uh, presence there and we are very, uh, very concerned for their safety, obviously given the extent of uh, the the bombardment. Uh, But uh, I know from my time there, they are determined. They were, you know, they've stayed there through thick and thin. Uh, They're determined to stay. Uh, But what they really need now more than anything else uh, is for uh, humanitarian access from the south. Uh, That's where most of the people are now. Uh, and that's where the people need incredible amounts of humanitarian assistance. So we're Mm, mm, looking to... Including the 40 Irish
3: citizens who are hoping to get out, uh, but that Rafa crossing, uh, the hope was yesterday that it would be open for some time to uh, allow aid in. It it seems as though the Israelis figured that that aid would end up in the hands of Hamas, so they uh, stopped the border from being opened. Uh, There's no prospect of of, uh, that route opening to people, is there?
4: well we did hope yesterday that there would be, that it would be open for some period of time to let uh, people with dual citizenship out and to let humanitarian supplies in like we have supplies south of the border and uh, we have them available and, read, and ready to uh, to go in but th- these are basic supplies they're not they're not guns, you know, they're not bombs or anything. Uh, these these are basic medical uh, supplies, food, water, uh, sanitation uh, for people on the move. And they really are desperately needed because water is running short in Gaza now. Uh, we have been supporting a water treatment plant, a desalinization plant just south of uh, Gaza. Uh, that's running very short of fuel. We're worried that that will close uh, all of our pre-positioned supplies—they've all been used up uh, now. But uh, as you say correctly, Michael, uh, the the um, Israelis control uh, 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 those border crossings. Well, Egypt controls the southern crossing, and that's where we really are hoping to get humanitarian aid in.
3: Indeed, and, uh,
4: you know, people, uh, no matter who they are. Sorry, Michael, just to finish this point, mm-hmm. the, the people, parties to any conflict, no matter who they are. Uh, They have obligations under international law to allow humanitarian uh, assistance. And the same goes for Hamas as well. We have called from the very outset for, for children who have been kidnapped by Hamas to be released unconditionally and immediately. Uh, but but humanitarian aid needs to be allowed uh, it to get in. That's, that's uh, what we're calling for.
3: Indeed, there's uh, reports of doctors now drinking IV fluid in hospitals because there is no water. Uh, and whatever water there is, uh, it's rapidly running out, as is electricity and fuel. Uh, and if hospitals can't operate, that in itself will result in deaths, let alone the bombs and the bullets.
4: You're absolutely correct. Probably I have paramount concern now, in a, you know, in a multifaceted crisis. But our paramount concern now really is around uh, the water uh, situation, because as we all know, water is life. People need water on a daily basis. Uh, and as hundreds of thousands of people uh, move throughout Gaza, they need access to water so that, you know, they're not they are not near taps. They're not. Near, they don't have any homes left. They've left their homes. They don't have any uh, shelter. So the provision of water, uh, at the very, very minimum to sustain life, uh, is now our biggest concern.
3: Right, uh, A population of uh, 2 million people in in such a a small area of land Mm -hmm. uh, and about half of them are being asked uh, to move southwards uh, because uh, I think uh, the expectation is that's uh, where the army will enter into Gaza. But out of that population, close to half of them are children, are they?
4: Correct, yes. Uh, When I was there, I I was struck by that, that uh, all the population of children uh, practically every single one of them uh with with very very few exceptions they've all been born they've grown up they've lived in Gaza they don't they don't know any, any other life any existence because you know it's completely uh, surrounded by what well, probably thought was a highly secure uh, border uh, right around Gaza obviously the events of 10 days ago uh proved otherwise uh, but uh, generally speaking it is not possible to get out of Gaza uh, and these children have known uh, nothing else um, and uh, what UNICEF has said uh, continuously, you know, a child is a child is a child no matter where they are where where they live, where they were born and grew up in in Ireland or in Israel uh, or in Gaza and they are entitled to protections under humanitarian uh, law and uh, UNICEF mm-hmm. along with our sister United Nations agencies, so the WFP, has a lot of food waiting to get in uh, they we, we are demanding that those international obligations are observed, and that humanitarian assistance is allowed uh, to get in to help these children they, i mean these these children are really suffering now
3: and despite what Israel might say, there are many innocent civilians in gaza it 's not a, a case that all of the citizens are are members of Hamas or ha- Hamas fighters for that. Uh, Matter Uh, and of all of the people in Gaza, children are the most innocent, uh, and as you say, should be protected uh, uh, under humanitarian law. Uh, President Michael D. Higgins, uh, critical of Ursula von der Leyen uh, as well for uh, not stating the European position, that international law must be protected. And I I take it that as an NGO, that would be one of UNICEF's first uh, uh, priorities in terms of what you'd be hoping to hear from politicians, that international law is respected.
4: Uh, that's absolutely correct, uh, Michael. We, you know, we operate in 150 countries around the world. Uh, we have to operate under uh, rules, uh, under conventions, under treaties, uh, and international law. All of these things uh, guarantee uh, safety and security for millions, hundreds of millions uh, of children throughout the world, and they're there for a reason, and they're signed by countries for a reason, including Ireland. And these are conventions like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Geneva uh, Convention, the UN Conventions, uh, various other treaties, all of which have been subscribed to by nations. And those treaties need to be upheld. Otherwise, certainly we can't do uh, our work without without they being observed. Uh, But the situation, as I said, on the ground at the moment uh, means... Uh, that uh, humanitarian access is not being uh, provided and there is an obligation uh, to do so. And again, I know I'm repeating myself here, but what the uh, people desperately need now is water, uh, sanitation, hygiene, food uh, and medical supplies. And The the thing is, we have them. Mm. We've got two flights coming into to to Sinai later on uh, this week and we need to have that border crossing open to, to get them in.
3: At this stage, I suppose those of us who are comfortable enough uh, to be looking at this from far afield, Uh, All that we can do is help the humanitarian effort uh, and hope that the politicians uh, will act in the interests of innocent uh, people. And UNICEF uh, in Gaza, you're hoping that you'll be able to get aid through as soon as possible, that that border with Egypt uh, will open sometime soon so that the convoys can come in. But I'm sure as soon as it comes in, uh, it'll be gobbled up pretty quickly and you'll continue to look for support from people.
4: Uh, yes it 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 will be the the need is uh, is pressing again trying to think of it in a, in an Irish context uh, you're talking about you know half the population of Ireland in a county you know the size of of Louth with with no services uh, and as i said hundreds of thousands of those now have nowhere to live they literally have no place above their heads at night uh, and they they need help um I'm repeating myself, but they they need water, sanitation, uh, and hygiene. And uh, the only way it looks like at the moment, because the uh, uh, the Israeli forces are on the northern uh, border crossing, that's where I went in a number of weeks ago. Uh, but the uh, the only feasible way of getting that aid in now is from uh, the Egyptian side. Uh, and I mean, this food, this food, and. Um, and, uh, and humanitarian aid. I mean, th- this is, is not going to be used to wage war. This is going to be used to feed people, uh, to comfort people who have faced absolutely a, a traumatic situation. Um, these people, as I said, have been uh, forced, forced displacement uh, in, in Gaza itself, and they desperately need our help.
3: Uh, and can I just ask you to conclude? Logistically, is UNICEF preparing for a, a broader conflict uh, for an even greater challenge?
4: Well, we hope not. Uh, we we sincerely hope not. We you know we we have, and I've seen our presence in Lebanon. I've seen our presence in in, in Jordan uh, and in other places uh, around the area in Palestine and in, in, in the West Bank. And we absolutely. I uh, hope uh, that it, it does not come to that, Michael. Uh, we're on the edge of an abyss. I would say, mm. perhaps, you know, we're we're over it now. Mm. You know, it's it, the, the the catastrophe is unfolding right now. Uh, but a, and you know, a wider conflict would, you know, be uh, of different orders of magnitude. So we're very focused. Uh, our people are focused on the ground about what they can achieve uh, if they get access to the uh, to the assistance that is available. Uh, and to to provide assistance to people uh, for women and children who def- desperately need it inside Gaza at the moment.
3: Indeed. Peter, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Peter Power, the Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland, speaking to us uh, from Amman in Jordan.
1: Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. Now, as you probably know, Shane O'Farrell was just 23 years of age when he lost his life, a hit and run, when he was on his bicycle near his home in Carrick Macross. This goes back to 2011. The driver of uh, the car was a man named Sigimantus gridziuska uh, who had multiple previous convictions and was on bail but was in breach of bail conditions. Uh, there were many concerns about the handling of the investigation into Shane's death uh, and indeed uh, the way that uh, the driver of the car was treated believed uh, to have uh, been on drugs at the time which is why uh, Uh, He drove away from the scene of the accident and indeed he was extradited rather than serving time in prison here for causing the death of Shane O'Farrell as a result of all of the questions that have been asked predominantly by Shane's mother, Lucia, uh, scoping exercise into the circumstances surrounding the tragic un- and untimely death of Shane O'Farrell was carried out by Judge Gerard Houghton.
1: In his report, Judge Houghton has concluded that there are not any circumstances surrounding the death of Mr Farrell which warrant further investigation or inquiry beyond those that have already been carried out. And he's very clear on that. Beyond those that have been carried out, there is no further warrant of investigation. He further concludes that no inquiry is necessary into the systems and the procedures for sharing of information between Ngarthasiya Khan and between the court service and other relevant state bodies operating at the time of O'Farrell's death. What he has done is make a number of recommendations, uh, and I think very important recommendations regarding bail, regarding suspended sentences, legislation, amendments to the Road Traffic Act, and in relation to notices of appeal that are administered by the court service. Uh, And I can confirm and I want to assure deputies that many of these recommendations are being progressed, if not enacted at this stage, and as they are implemented, I have absolute confidence that they will strengthen our justice system. Above all, what we want to ensure is that nobody goes through what the family here have gone through, that nobody else finds themselves in this situation. Whatever changes need to be made are being made, but it is very clear in this report that it does not warrant a further inquiry, which at the end of that will not actually give us any different answers or, or leave us in a different position than we are now.
3: Now, this is the Minister for Justice, Helen McIntyre speaking on the 27th of uh, September uh, about uh, that scoping exercise into the death of uh, Shane O'Farrell uh, that was carried out by Judge Houghton. Statements will be made... On this in the doll today under government time and the Irish Council for Civil Liberties is supporting the family's call for an independent inquiry into this. Let's speak to its executive director, Liam Herrick, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Liam, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. As we heard there, the recommendation is that there is no need for an independent inquiry. Uh, why do you believe that that recommendation is wrong?
5: Good morning, Michael. Well, I think what's important to bear in mind here is that five years ago, uh, the doyle itself voted that there should be an independent inquiry in this case. Um, the circumstances of Shane O'Farrell's death give rise to very serious questions for the criminal justice system more generally, in terms of failings of Angarda Síochána, failings of the court service, um, and failings in terms of the various investigations that have taken place over the years, um, which I think... Uh, ha- have never been satisfactorily investigated. And we're still now in a position where uh, I think the scoping exercise it, it has demonstrated a significant flaws which have been identified by the family. Uh, and I think that the original vote of the Doyle for an independent inquiry still stands and is still valid. So w- the family, I think, uh, have fought very, very hard, far longer than they should have, yeah. to try to get to the truth of what happened to Shane. Uh, and we're still not at that point now.
3: OK. What uh, should uh, an inquiry look at? Uh, should it look at uh, the death of Shane O'Varill or, or should it look at uh, how this Lithuanian man uh, was at, at liberty and uh, somehow free, uh, despite breaking bail conditions, uh, to drive a, a motor car uh, which resulted in the death of Shane
5: Yeah, I mean, there has been a criminal investigation initially into the circumstances of Shane's death. Now, I think the family have many, many concerns about that criminal investigation and ultimately the trial of the man who is responsible for Shane's death. But that matter is essentially closed. The real questions that the family have been identifying for, for many years are the circumstances which led to somebody being at liberty when... He had such a significant length of very serious convictions and charges pending, and where the courts on a number of occasions had indicated that if he were to breach bail conditions again, he would be remanded in custody. There are very serious questions here for the Mm. failings in terms of the court service, and also questions in terms of the guards, in terms of, the information they had about the activities of this individual and their failure to share them with the courts Mm. and other agencies. And also serious questions have been raised, which are touched on in the scoping report, about the history of the involvement of this man with Angarda Siakana, questions being raised about whether he was an informer, Mm. uh, which have never been answered satisfactorily. So I think there are questions that are not just about the rights of the O'Farrell family to the truth, but also questions that are so serious that they are of public concern and significant public concern. And I think that is the ultimate problem with the scoping report, is that it identifies many very serious problems and then says, well, they're not serious enough that in fact failings of the system need to just be excused and forgotten about. And I think that that is not what the Iraqtus has voted for, and it's not what justice demands.
3: OK, uh, we heard Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, speaking there a moment ago uh, on the 27th of September. Uh, in that debate, she was asked if this man was an informer, uh, a question that she didn't answer. Uh, but she did say that many of the issues uh, that have emanated from this terrible story are being addressed, uh, that they were addressed in, in uh, the report from Judge Houghton uh, and uh, that action is being taken. Uh, but when it comes to Shane death, it is a particularly hard story for the family reading the scoping exercise report uh, because there's criticism that he was out cycling late at night uh, that Don't think that had been his intention. He, he was training for a triathlon uh, and uh, he would have gone cycling generally with a friend of his, but not on this night, whatever had happened, uh, and found himself cycling after dark without proper lighting o- on his bicycle. Uh, and somebody else uh, had been on the road, uh, which had a speed limit of 100 kilometres an hour, and they told, gave evidence uh, at the trial, Uh, that they were travelling at 90 kilometres an hour themselves uh, and said to their passenger, oh my God, look at that, there's a bicycle there, I didn't see it because there were no lights on it. Uh, And it seems that the cause of Shane's death, if you're to believe what's in the scoping exercise, was that he was driving on a fast, busy road, late at night, dark, without lighting on his bicycle.
5: I have to say, Michael, and emphasise that how distressing it is for the family and very wide group of friends of Shane O'Farrell and all of us who have taken an interest in this case, including many members of the Iraqtus, to see the approach that's been taken in the scoping exercise, uh, as it's called. I mean, what, what, what is at stake here is that over many, many years, it is widely acknowledged within government and the justice system that there has not been an effective investigation of how Shane O'Farrell died and the circumstances that led up to it. The reason the scoping exercise was put in place, we were told, was it was as a prelude to whether there would be a statutory inquiry into the failings of the justice system in this case. And the fact that the scoping exercise then proceeded to take an approach where it examines in details the actions of the victim of this terrible incident um, and seems to... I I, I think it's Mm. deeply unfortunate, seems to apportion some culpability for the victim of the accident rather than examining thoroughly, which it fails to do, the proper failings of the justice system in the case. I mean, the bottom line here is that this was a a case where uh, a young man of 23 years of age was killed in a serious road accident. There was a criminal prosecution of the person responsible to it, which I think raises many questions in and of itself. But the idea that the young man would be held responsible uh, to the extent that he is in the report, I think, is deeply unfortunate and is definitely very distressing for all of those who've been involved in this case.
3: Yeah, uh, and the judge in his report makes that point that the family rejected uh, the idea that Shane was responsible in any way for his own death.
5: This was was never the proper concern of this scoping exercise. There was a criminal trial where the question of the circumstances of the road traffic accident were examined many, many years ago. The purpose of the scoping exercise, as everybody would have understood, was to examine if there were sufficient matters of public concern related to the failings of the justice system. And we're talking about a litany of failures here in terms of the court services, the guards, the Department of Justice the garda Ombudsman Commission and the, the, the coroner's inquest and the previous independent review mechanism. So there has been, over the last 12 years, a litany of investigations that have not got to the truth. That was the question for the scoping exercise. And the fact that it has chosen to re-traumatise the family by examining again the circumstances of the road traffic accident to apportion responsibility to the victim is i think just the most glaring of many failings in this report.
3: Okay, Liam the doll uh, will take statements uh, today and I'm sure we'll be hearing much more uh, about this and indeed the family's concerns about that scoping exercise uh, report uh, in uh, that debate and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program today. Liam Herrick is executive director of ICCL that's the Irish Council for Civil Liberties.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Well, working in a, a nursing home at any time really can't be easy. During the pandemic, I don't know. It must have been uh, next to impossible for a lot of people to find out uh, how staff coped. Uh, a study was uh, commissioned called the Co-worker Nursing Home Study. Uh, this uh, was part of a, a study from St Patrick's Mental Health Services, Trinity College Dublin, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, and Nursing Homes Ireland. Uh, it saw a very serious impact on. On the mental health of staff, a, a second uh, survey has uh, just been published, and we'll hear a little bit more about this now. Dr. Conan Brady of Trinity College Dublin, the lead author of the co-worker nursing home study, joins us. Uh, and a very good morning to you, Dr. Brady. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us on uh, the program. You looked to see what impact there was on the mental health uh, of nursing home staff, uh, and in this fall follow-up report. This is at a time when uh, the restrictions were easing and things weren't as bad as uh, the first report, which was in 2021. What did you find uh, was uh, the uh, state of uh, people's mental health at the beginning of 2022?
6: Thank you very much, Michael. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we, we did two surveys, one uh, spaced um, by a year from the other one. The first one was actually bringing everyone's memories back to the end of 2020 when we were just rolling out vaccination. And uh, of course, as you know, the first people we were giving vaccinations to were were nursing home staff and long-term care residents, actually. So there was a lot of optimism that actually many of these changes would make a big difference for the staff working in nursing home. I suppose that was the death of lockdown as well, when the restrictions were very tight at the time. So our expectation was that a year later, we would find that many of the problems that we found at the end of 2020 would have improved, given that lockdown restrictions at ease and given that vaccinations had been rolled out. The findings we found in the first survey were already very severe and much worse than we expected actually unfortunately. So uh, we found that staff had really high levels of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. They also had high symptoms of depression. Uh, they had problems with moral injury, which is the psychological distress that people experience when they are forced to act or do things that go against their conscience. But uh, contrary to our expectations, unfortunately, it seems that things got even worse uh, over the course of the year. And the findings from our second survey were, uh, without exception, uh, worse than what we saw one year earlier, unfortunately.
3: Uh, and so that led to, to people... Uh, who had suicidal thoughts?
6: Yes, yeah, so among, among other issues, but yeah, there was um, quite a high rate of suicidal ideation, as we call it. So that's just suicidal thinking, but also very concerning, um, suicidal planning. So uh, many staff, um, or more than we expected, actually, especially in the second survey, about 15% of staff reports that they had some thoughts of ending their lives in the past week, actually, uh, or taking steps to do so, uh, which really indicates the level of distress that's been experienced by uh, staff working in this setting.
3: And that's kind of a, an emergency situation, is it not?
6: Absolutely. So, look, I suppose suicidal thinking by itself would, would, wouldn't would always be an emergency. And it's not uncommon to have people who have suicidal thinking. Mm. But uh, really, uh, I suppose the most the most important thing we have to say about it is that, look, we, it's really important to highlight that these problems are real, that staff need to get help, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that we did this study actually was to uh, highlight to staff that there is help available to them if they need it, uh, and they should reach out for help if they, if they need support.
3: Okay, uh, and do you believe that the staff were failed through the pandemic?
6: So we, we didn't examine it specifically in this study, but there's a very substantial body of research that shows that nursing homes were definitely let down earlier on in the pandemic. They were really an afterthought at the start of the pandemic. Um, and obviously, you know, some of the media coverage is very difficult for staff, I think, at the time as well, given there were some um, disastrous cases with specific nursing homes in some parts of the country. Uh, certainly, they didn't have uh, sufficient uh, personal protective equipment earlier on. And I think there was a lot of difficulty in rolling out the policies to keep staff uh, safe in their workplace mm. and then to add to that of course as well the sector is huge recruitment difficulties which have only gotten worse because of all the negative um, experiences the nursing homes have had over the, the the past number of years i think that's probably what we're seeing here to some degree that the the working environment has become uh, much more difficult for staff and that's really uh, manifesting now in significant mental health difficulties for
3: them. Was there a sense of siege, though, uh, among staff uh, because of uh, the pandemic? And this is at a, a time when things should have been getting better. The public health restrictions were easing, uh, people were getting vaccinated and nursing home staff uh, would have been uh, at the top of the queue.
6: Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, one, one thing that I think comes out in some of the data that we've collected is that uh, it was just very much never a never-ending scenario for them, uh, for staff working in nursing homes. Uh, I think it was already a difficult environment to work in because of staffing issues and because of um, the difficulties involved with, with caring for um, residents in, in the midst, middle of a pandemic in the early stages, where it just didn't really end for them. And I think a lot of staff um, left the sector in this time as well and there's certainly, you know, nursing homes are on the pylice of so that. There's been huge difficulties with recruitment and retention of staff over time and that's only added to the to the sense that they might be under siege or, or having difficulties um, in, in the workplace in general.
3: Mm, and conditions like post-traumatic stress or moral injury, uh, that other term that you use, they're pretty serious aren't they?
6: Absolutely. So look, I suppose these aren't diagnostic, Um you know, to, to get a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, you'd have to go see a, a specialist uh, who would go through... Um, you know, a very comprehensive assessment with you. But certainly these symptoms are indicative of serious problems, yes. And look, if they're persistent and not resolvable and if they're causing any problems with people's functioning, we would suggest that they need to see that definitely their GP at the very least and they may need to be referred to uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist for assessments.
3: And you're advising people uh, if they are working in nursing homes or elsewhere for that matter. I'm sure to seek help if they need help. But could we have done better or can we gain from from the experience of what we went through during the COVID pandemic, uh, because uh, I think public health experts will tell us uh, that there's uh, more problems coming down the road and we'll see other pandemics and so on uh, over time. Um, Can we look after staff uh, in places such as nursing homes or residential care uh, in a way uh, that would... Not result in uh, the findings uh, that you're reporting on now.
6: Yeah, I think the big lesson that we all learned from the from the pandemic this time around. And I think you know, in fairness to governments, they've become very aware of this over the past uh, number of years. And you know, we've had we've had interest in our study from the Department of Health, for example. Um, you know that they, they the nursing homes were forgotten about. I um, suppose the, the panic was really about the hospitals uh, very early on in the pandemic, as I'm sure everyone remembers. And uh, it was really about making sure the hospitals were staffed and the HC was very concerned about that, and rightfully so. Uh, and there was a big rush to get ventilators and PP and things for hospitals, but actually nursing homes weren't really weren't really remembered at that time. Uh, I think that really added to the sense of frustration that the that, that, that staff on the ground working in nursing homes felt. Uh, I think it was a very frightening time for them, and obviously they were very worried about caring for the residents at that time. So I think that lesson has been learnt. I think that governments are more aware of that now. And I suppose, look, it's likely that we're going to see other new respiratory illnesses in the next 20 years we've seen three coronaviruses in the last 20 years this decade so far this century so far uh, so we have to plan for this hopefully it's not going to happen of course but we do have to learn from that lesson
3: from on the pandemic OK and we'll leave it there thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today that's uh, Dr. Conan Brady of Trinity College Dublin the lead author of uh, the co-worker Nursing Home Study now if you'd like to make comment on the programme today as always we'd love to hear from you you can ring us on 041 nine eight three two thousand that's o four one nine eight three two thousand if you want to ring us with a comment today you can also text or whatsapp a comment to us on oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight 086 658. That's if you want to text or WhatsApp a comment, or you can email it to us. Our email address is michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed,
1: Reed on LMFM. LMFM. Now, some
3: comments coming to us uh, this morning. Mary listening to the media reports about Joe Biden's visit to the Middle East for talk. She wonders what exactly he thinks he can achieve. It seems to her that neither side is prepared to listen to outsiders, and both sides are focused on inflicting as much damage as possible. On the other it's horrible to watch. She says, while Biden's visit is well intentioned, it's pointless really. Thank you indeed. Mary, I think there are some who think uh, that Israel is holding off for the Biden visit before they start uh, their land invasion so that it'll give credence to what they're doing. Tony thinks uh, that the government's plans to dish out extra penalty points to motorists who commit offences on bank holidays is a big fat waste of of time. Bad driving happens every day of the week. Extra penalty points should be introduced for second, third and fourth offences instead and that might be a bit of a deterrent. Interesting point. Tony, thank you for your call. Thanks, Joe, for calling us today as well. And Joe says there's no point increasing penalties and lowering speed limits unless Guardian enforce the, the laws that are already in place, which they're not doing. Anyone breaking the rules now will continue to break them anyway, regardless of the limits and penalties. Uh, Another call about that from Davey who says penalty points should be increased across the board every day of the year. The road safety message is not getting through to people. The carnage on the roads uh, this past weekend only emphasises the fact if uh, there was proper enforcement of the current laws and uh, savage repercussions for any road safety breaches then we might stand a chance of making people act in a more responsible way. Thank you very much indeed Davey for your call as well thanks to to Peter in Drada who says uh, there's a couple on his road who are living in a four bedroom house, so they've two children, but they've grown up and moved out and he wonders what do they need four bedrooms for? Surely they sleep in just one of the rooms and a one room apartment would do them just fine uh, and he thinks uh, that this idea of people over the age of 55 and loud downsizing is a great Great idea. He says most people who are of that age, 55 or older, have adult children if uh, they've children at all. What do they need a family home for? Could they not give it to someone who needs a house for a family? Thank you for your call as well. Patsy and Carrick texting us today saying Catholics up north were treated like dirt for years and we know what that led to. Israel treated people of Gaza the same. And now we see what's happening. Will the human race? ever learn. Uh, What a slap in the face for the O'Farrell family, says a Navin listener. Uh, uh, This report on their son's death, the death of Shane O'Farrell. That driver, even though he was extradited, should be doing prison time in his own country. Very bad judgment by the justice system. Uh, Here, says our Navin listener. Uh, Text or WhatsApp message to us from Sean, who says... Alan Shatter, ex Gael minister, uh, Jewish citizen, writes to say Hamas wants to kill all the Jews. Uh, we know Hitler hated the Jews. And do you remember when John Cray, a Limerick priest, gave a rant from the public against the Jews? Why do people hate the Jews? If the Israelis continue what they are doing, how can they improve their image? Anything you say about the Jews... Uh, Ends up in you being called anti-Semitic. Let's just tell the truth, says Sean. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Sean. Uh, I think Alan Chatterer has made his views uh, very much known on what happened on uh, the 7th of October and indeed. The response from uh, the Israeli government Uh, on that note somebody says it's now emerging that not only were Israeli babies beheaded uh, but uh, that other Israeli children were tied up and their hands and feet cut off and then dozens of Israelis were burnt alive while suffering incredible agony from their torture. It's now confirmed that at least 2000 Hamas bacteria invaded Israel on the 7th of October. I'm um, just a bit taken aback by that turn of phrase. Hamas bacteria invaded Israel on the 7th of October. Okay. Um, why did Reid not put any of this to Purcell yesterday? Uh, this is. Uh,
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Betty Purcell of uh, the Ireland-Palestinian Solidarity Organization Uh, And her caller says, uh, will I now undertake to be less biased when I'm interviewing similar Hamas appeasers in the near future? Once the routing by IDF of Hamas uh, from their tunnels gets underway, Ursula von der Leyen was right that the utterly depraved October 7th invasion was a declaration of war by Islamism on Israel and also on the West. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Um, I don't know uh, if it was a a declaration of all out war against the West. Uh, But yes, it probably was a declaration of war against Israel. And yes, uh, going back uh, to our previous caller uh, and Alan Shatter's comments, I think Hamas have said that they do want to eradicate all of the Israeli population. Uh, But that that doesn't make the case, does it, uh, for war crimes, for breaching international law, for breaching humanitarian law, uh, because two wrongs don't make a right. I I, I think um, we heard those views that were expressed a moment ago to a large extent on the programme yesterday from Yankee Fackler uh, before we spoke to the uh, Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign Group. And he was quite strong in his comments, but I, I think most people believe two wrongs don't make a, a right. And that is the criticism of President Michael D. Higgins of Ursula von der Leyen, that she gave unconditional support to Israel to respond in any way it felt appropriate following that brutal, brutal, horrific um attack, uh, that act of terrorism on October 7th and uh, some of the things uh, that uh, we've been hearing there in that comment. Uh, And very, very critical uh, that uh, Ursula von der Leyen didn't express the European view that international law must be upheld. Uh, I think there's been a a lot of applause locally for our President Michael D. Higgins for being so strong uh, and making the statements uh, that he did yesterday He, by the way, was speaking uh, on uh, the fringes of a major conference that took place yesterday because uh, it is a big bad world, uh, as you know, and hunger and starvation uh, is uh, one of uh, the things uh, that uh, the world seems... (sighs) Just impossible or finds impossible uh, to come to terms with. Uh, Yesterday was World Food Day and uh, President Higgins uh, was speaking at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization meeting that took place. And I think we can hear some of his comments uh, on hunger Uh, and starvation in the world and how there is so much food in the world at the same time uh, and how none of that makes sense to President Higgins.
0: It would, in my view, be absolutely disgraceful to simply ask coming generations to repeat our mistakes and equally I say also I'm not so certain about this intergenerational difference because there are very many older people whose hearts have been broken at our failure to deal with it. To achieve equality, to end hunger, and to make a world that would be characterized by cooperation rather than by conflict and war. We must address the dysfunctionalities, yes, that are not sufficiently recognized regarding the delivery of food, where success in production is often defeated by costly transportation. The issues of ownership, of seeds, fertilizers, tools of production, and their distribution, obstacles to the migration of science and technological innovations. Questions surely about the lending policies of the financial institutions cannot continue to be ignored. We ask people who have suffered from COVID and people who are suffering from food food poverty and from food nutrition deficiencies. We ask them to finance loans in so many countries What they pay in servicing loans exceeds what they're paying in public health and education. We know that some of Europe's largest lenders assisted fossil fuel companies to raise more than one trillion from the global bond markets since the Paris Climate Agreement. That is a test of authenticity. We must face up to these sobering facts, facts which illustrate the dysfunctionality of our current food system. How half the world's over 8 billion population are defined as malnourished. How a bi- 2 billion people are experiencing undernutrition. How over 2.5 billion people consume low quality diets of too much food. While 3 billion people could not afford a healthy diet. Yet 1.6 billion tons of primary food production are wasted each year in what are described as developed countries, where obesity levels continue to spiral. Such food wastage results in an unnecessary carbon footprint estimated at 3.3 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent emissions being released into the atmosphere each year. The total volume of water used each year to produce food that is lost or wasted 250 cubic kilometres is equivalent to three times the volume of Lake Geneva. Seminary, 1.4 billion hectares of land, 28% of the world's agricultural area, is used annually to produce food that is lost or wasted.
3: A lot to think about there. That's the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, speaking in Rome to mark World Food Day at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisation meeting. The President is uh, to go on and to meet with Pope Francis. So more comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, we would uh, a text message from Mary, WhatsApp message saying, Michael, remember what Gordon Wilson said and did after the OMA bombing. Think his example should reflect on on the war between Israel and Palestine. Thank you, indeed. Uh, that was Gordon Wilson. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Margaret, sorry. Uh, that uh, lost his daughter and said that any retaliation would not bring back his daughter or bring peace uh, for that matter. Thank you, Margaret, uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme. Uh, Deirdre and Kells uh, says Michael e. Higgins is a great president uh, and he's right uh, in what he's saying about uh, all the food in the world and all of uh, the people who are starving in the world. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, Deirdre Mary texting us saying Michael I I know a single woman who got a one bedroom apartment she's miserable she's no room for a suitcase or to swing a cat for that matter no room for a grandchild to stay she's on a second floor and has to go down a dark stairway if she got out Uh, we, we should be careful we don't build too many one beds they shouldn't be isolating old people into one bracket or punish them because they paid and bought their house in hard times gone by thank you very much indeed Mary uh, we'd Jules texting us about that as well, saying good morning in relation to people over the age of 55, having a council four bedroom home and only having two people living in it. I am one of those people. My other bedrooms are used when the grandchildren come over to stay over or one of my adult children, for that matter, or elderly parents stay. Why should we have to downgrade our house? When it has been our home for almost 40 years. Thank you, Jules, uh, for your text. Our phone number, 0419832000. If you want to comment today, that's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp, 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed
1: on LMFM.
3: The Minister for Justice has uh, announced uh, that over 3 million euro from the proceeds of crime is to be used to fund projects that promote community safety projects that would not be able to access funding otherwise let's uh, speak uh, to rory or muraku shin fein td for Louth and east mead and uh, a very good morning to you a lot of this money uh, is uh, coming to us locally it seems
7: Well, some of this money is coming. I think it's Connect Family Resource Centre and the Family Addiction Support Network. But, uh, look, we we welcome, obviously, any money that has been taken from those that do absolute harm onto our communities through organised crime and such. And, you know, the more the merrier. I I don't think anyone is going to complain about money going to these sort of organisations. But the fact is, these always have to be for novel new projects, like the Family Addiction Support Network uh, project, that's about 44,000. That's in relation to... uh, trauma in the community. It's there's an element of a coming together of what would have formerly been organisations that would have been affiliated with the Family Addiction Support Network as existed, you know, across the state, and it's the idea of ensuring, um, the idea of ensuring that family would be considered in any sort of when you're looking at solutions in relation to, let's say, the drug issue that we're dealing with at this point and, and time. And I know there's been a considerable amount of interaction, let's say, with the Family Addiction Support Network, with the Drugs Policy Unit um, within the department. Now, the fact is, like, I have spoken to you before many times in relation to the promises, let's say, that were made as regards... um the draw implementation plan and um, even, uh, you know, the, the Gearing Report initially. And and we haven't seen that follow through in the sense of uh, core funding. On the basis, actually, of the report, uh, because Family Addiction Support Network would deal with Cabin Monaghan, Louthat, and Mead, mm-hmm. there is, uh, they were given money for a support worker in Cabin Monaghan on the back of the Gearin Report, they would state, even though you know they haven't got any core funding in relation to sustainability in the area closer to uh, Drogheda and and across Louth, so I I still think this is an issue that here I have been following mm. up with uh, Minister McEntee and Minister Nocton and there's an element of ping pong, but but I think we just need to make sure that somebody takes some element of responsibility. But okay. we still have but, the but, case but where, but this where this
3: money this money is intended to be spent in, in County Louth, County Mead and County Cavan. That's that forty four thousand you mentioned. There's also fifty four thousand for the Connect Family Resource Centre yes. that you mentioned but also 47,000 going to Froga in Loud for their cable project for the Thrive Together project, 141,000 going to the of Women and Children's Refuge for their yes. Finding Safety project, and uh, there's to be €150,000 uh, spent in Navan on the Be Safe in Your Space project, which is run by oh, like,
7: And like I said... Any of these organisations are, are delighted. Uh, obviously, these applications went in, I think, in around May, and I know that people had anticipated that the results would have been back in around, I, I, I think, July. Now, obviously, that has uh, that has been put back, and I know a major part of the work, and again, to go back just to finish it off, on the Family Addiction Support Network, related to the running of, you know, a conference to make all these points in relation to, obviously, trauma-informed care you know the community op response and the fact of the family being absolutely central and um, to it but obviously they yeah. had to delay their plans for that because um obviously the, it didn't get okayed and the money isn't is only being released now okay you know uh, now like of course no one's going to like it's all very positive like you're talking if you're talking with the refuge if you're talking about feroga and the pieces of work that they do across the board all, all, all sound. Now these are one-off payments mm. as I say for novel particular Yeah, but you're, you're
3: talking about 15% or thereabouts are you not out of this uh, 3 million euro coming to projects in loud and Mead? would you have expected more than that?
7: Well look, we could get into this battle of course. From my point of view, I want to see nearly everything coming here, but that's not realistic. The re but the now, the other thing I'd said no, no more than the issue I have around and um, the change in relation to uh The Garda structure, that I have a particular issue that we need to deal with the actual issues that we have, particularly in Drogheda and Dundalk, but across County Loud. I would say if we're dealing with the issues that, you know, pertain as regards to drug issue, the addiction issues and all the rest of it, that we really need a proper needs analysis on what needs done we need to look at the services as exist ensure that none of them go to the wall because let's be clear the family addiction support network is surviving on volunteerism Mm. and that's not sustainable into the future Uh, so we make sure we save the organizations as exist at this point in time and we look at the needs that are out there because look you you just need to go to the district court to the circuit court and you can see the issues that there are you look in any estate and here are states that wouldn't have seen drug dealing five and ten years ago and it's all there and it's very obvious Uh, And And,
3: Have the the applications been made Uh, I'm wondering if I'm reading uh, the notes I have in front of me incorrectly Uh, But uh, is there €800,000 or close €750,000 that is unspent because uh, the Community Safety Innovation Fund has €3.7 million and €3 million is being allocated, it seems?
4: Yeah, well, there's obviously
7: been an increase in relation to the monies that and um, that are now available through the Community Safety Innovation Fund. Well look if we have any discrepancy or any difficulties in relation to monies being spent that's something that needs to be like looked at. Like the fact is from what I see in any organisation you deal with there's not enough money. The problem is they have to spend a considerable amount of their time putting in applications to the likes of, you know, these sort of funding streams. And, you know, they're obviously delighted when they get it. In some cases, to do a separate piece of work, which will obviously take a huge amount of effort. And in some cases, Volunteerism, which which you know is half the problem, you know we're absolutely reliant on obviously goodwill and, and volunteerism. I would have said you know somewhat similar in relation to the fact of the the, the threatened section thirty nine workers strike. Those people put put it uh, put it off and put it off. Because they felt such an affinity with those that they worked with, and all the rest of it, and it has only become an issue in the last while when people weren't able to, uh, you know, couldn't wash their faces Mm. in relation to, you know, the earnings they made, and had to go and do similar jobs within the HSE. So, look, we need to get another uh,
3: another question. uh, uh, I could put it to you: When this uh, Community Safety Innovation Fund was established? I thought it was established to to help communities uh, fight the war against drugs or whatever way you want to put that. Uh, But um, a lot of this money seems to be going uh, to refuge centres. Is the money that was intended to battle drugs being used to sort out a totally separate problem as significant and important as that problem is because we've nowhere near enough refuges for women suffering domestic violence in this country? Yeah.
7: And there's nobody going to, you know, talk against the fact that we need a huge level of resources in relation to refuges and in relation to uh, women's safety. Look, we can even Mm. see the cases that are ongoing at the minute in relation to the absolute importance of that. But was that the idea of the fund? No, no. My understanding of it now, obviously, you can make a determination in relation to what's community and what's community development, I was told, first of all, we, we had a fear that this would be infill money for money that was already promised by government. So on some level, it isn't that. That is to be welcome. Now, let's be absolutely clear. See, the likes of talking about figures of 2, 3 or 7 million euro is not going to deal with the issue we have in relation to drug and drug crime. So if we're going to get real in relation to that... It's back to we have to make sure that we have a proper needs analysis and then we actually look at what will actually have an impact. Now, we've all been very welcoming of the fact that we finally have the Citizens' Assembly on drugs. We need to see what it reports and we need to, you know, take that best practice particularly from across Europe and further, we have to work with others on an international basis as well, um, and we have to and we have to enact something that works better than what we're dealing with at the minute, because you're dealing with an issue yeah. that can't be out Not to say I don't have many interactions with yeah. the guards where what you're looking for is action to be taken against serious criminals yeah. that are putting families and communities yeah. and, and, and under I know, real pressure.
3: I know and I can understand why you don't want to put down funding going to women's refuges, and that's not the purpose of asking you the question I'm just asking if it's coming from the wrong fund, if this fund was supposed to be a war chest to tackle drugs problems and that that chest is now being raided because the government hasn't been able to fund refugees otherwise
7: and what I'm saying is see in relation to t- tackling the drug issue. None of this money is, even if all of this was used mm. in relation to those particular projects, it isn't going to work. And if we are not going to sustain the organizations and the outfits that are required in relation to dealing mm. with these issues, you know, even with the best will in the world, one off funding for particular projects as soon as, mm. they, as they are is fine. But that's not going to cut the mustard. No, I, like I've said it before, we are not serious in any way, shape or form, in dealing with the drugs issue. And that's everything from policing in relation to the early interventions in relation to uh, youth diversion projects. And here, there's an awful lot of good work is done. (laughs) And like I've always said to you, Michael, if we were really serious about all of that, we would be starting at a very young age with kids, particularly in disadvantaged areas, and those who would come from sometimes... You know, even more disadvantaged settings, you mm. know, where we but, are uh, setting uh, them uh, up. For I'm fail. still
3: not clear of what your understanding of it is, and I'm hoping you'll tell me so that I'll have a better understanding of it. Uh, but what I'm asking you is it, 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 the money that has been taken out of this fund uh, to... Uh, go to women's and children's refuges across the country, not just the one in, Dub- in Drogheda. Is that an inappropriate use of the Community Safety Innovation Fund because it was established to tackle uh, problems related to drugs?
7: Let's be clear, I so suppose people applied on the basis of the criteria that was given out. The whole idea, I suppose the government would make the argument that this is the idea of you take back from those who take from the community and you provide back to the wider community. You know, because at times we were saying, should this money come from the places almost that the money is seized? But then you could get in the ridiculous set of circumstances of we'd be checking where the guard stopped the car that was caught with a significant amount of money on the M1 and what county it fell into. So we wouldn't want that sort of scenario. Look, I am not going to give out about the fact of where some of this money has gone. What I am saying is none of this money are in sufficient amounts to do real business. And also, these are going for an awful lot of, as I say, one-off projects, which which may be very beneficial to communities. Some of them will deal directly with communities and with families and those that are dealing with the drug issue. Not all of them. Would I much prefer that there was other funding streams that provided the necessary money in relation to women's refugees? Yes. Would I much prefer that there was a hell of a lot more money in relation to dealing with the drug problem? Yes. Do I think, wish there was an even increased amount that was taken from that money that is seized from criminals? Absolutely. Do I still think that that can't replace the fact that many of these organisations need core funding, need multi-annual funding, and without that, they cannot make their determinations and they cannot be strategic? I'll be honest, the Family Addiction Support Network, and that, and not to take away from the great work, let's say, that's done by MQI, uh, you know what I mean, in, in the loud area in relation to, to, to adding supports, but look, the fact is, they have their promises have been made in relation to core funding. I'll tell you what they're doing at the minute. They are involved in a pilot project it include and others from a point of view of ensuring that they have that they are providing data that can be centrally used. And we know all the, you know the work, and we all look at the reports from the HRB and others. You know, so we need to ensure that we have that steady flow of information because I've gone over and back with Hildegard and and Helen McEntee and others, and they will always talk about evidence based. Well, now, that's an organization that's doing its absolutely damnedest from a point of view of providing that information. But look, you, me and everyone else out there who's, you know, living in County Loud, realizes the particular issues that pertain at this point in time in relation to drug crime in relation to families under pressure, in relation to addiction services. And here, we're talking about addiction services. We're all going to, a number of us, including myself, will be at Puris for their launch at the downtown hub around, you know, a new gambling initiative. Vosheen McConville is launching it at 11 o'clock. So I'm hoping to get to that before I make it up the road, obviously okay. not breaking any speed limits uh, to, to okay. the dogs to okay. deal with obviously other okay. necessary pieces of work.
3: All right, well, I better let you off the line and thank you indeed uh, for taking our call this morning. That is uh, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Rory or Michael,
1: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: on LMFM. One in three older people or 33.6% of older people who live alone are at risk of poverty. It's an increase of... Uh, from 1 in 5 in 2021 uh, when it was 21.5%. An incredible uh, statistic. Uh, Overall, the risk of poverty in this country is 13%, just to put that in perspective. Uh, But Age Action Ireland uh, is highlighting this data, which comes uh, from uh, the Silk survey uh, to make uh, the point uh, that they believe uh, that the state pension should be Benchmarked and index linked. Let's speak to Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action. A very good morning to you, Celine, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. That's a, an awful lot of, of uh, people who are at risk of poverty.
8: Indeed. And unfortunately, um, Budget 2024 announced no increase in the living alone allowance um, for those people where there was um, an additional payment of €200, like a once-off payment, but the core rate hasn't increased. And this particularly affects women. More older women live alone uh, because... Um, unfortunately women tend to live longer um, and then they um, unfortunately end up in this really sad circumstance where they have to try and cover the running of the house for that used to be done for two people and in Age Action's recent report that spotlights the income and older age which we released for International Day of Eradication of Poverty which is today um, we highlight this sort of experience of older women and unfortunately we see in the report as well this idea of cumulative disadvantage and advantage so the idea that disadvantage builds up over the course of your life and then exacerbates inequalities that you might experience so if we look at women Mm. women will maybe not have been um, in the workforce and making pension contributions because they were working at home Um, they may have had to leave work because of the marriage bar and in, what this means now is that older women's pensions are at least 35% lower than men's and also more women living alone and so there are greater risk of that poverty that um, you mentioned already. And really um, in, in our report... That's online um, and if someone can't get online and they'd like a copy of the report they can just ring our office um, and we will try to send one out to you but the, it, the, the report really is making the case that social protection is so so important for mm. all of us who need it.
9: Well what but would people t- do without it?
3: For us. What would people do without it? I, I mean there's well, an awful lot of people yeah. who have their pension and nothing else uh, what is it 3 in 10 uh, 90% yeah, of their income is ten. from the pension?
8: three in 10 people over the age of 66 rely on social protection for 90% of their income now that that's a testament to how important social protection is and also why we really need to make sure that it's adequate and secure. So those people, uh, 3 in 10, relying on it for 90% of their income, have basically no other income and they're waiting every year for the ministers to stand up and tell them what they're going to have in the next budget, which is why Age Action um, is part of a Pension Promise campaign to ensure that the pension set at 34% of average earnings, which means taking the politics out of the pension. It means it's legislated for and it goes up year on year depending on um, average earnings and in inflation but also what we can see is that older people are highly reliant on other forms of social protection not just the pension so the fuel allowance which not everybody gets, mm. the living alone allowance which is inadequate, mm. uh, the free travel path which is vital for many people but not used all that much in rural areas because there's no bus to get. Mm. Um, you know, so there, there's mm. a number of things there that's and really important. And the medical card, of course. Uh,
3: uh, the and medical card, yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of people would argue, though, that uh, we're quite generous to pensioners mm. in this country. I mean, relative to other countries.
8: Well, I think there is a perception there that the, the rate of the pension is high. But, in fact, Ireland has the second lowest level of income replacement in the EU, um, so, you know, the, the pension has to do an awful lot here as well in that we don't have universal access to healthcare, care. Um, so a lot of people feel they have to have private uh, medical insurance and that was one of the things we found in our research for the Spotlight on income in older age is mm. the fear amongst older people that they will become ill um, and not be able to get the treatment that they need. Um, and then, of course, being ill, is expensive if you have a medical card and um, you may still have to have prescription charges and not everybody gets the medical card obviously because it's means tested and then there's the fear well if I get a five on the pension or 12 euro in the pension will I lose my medical cards because I'm over the income threshold if, it, because if they it, don't go up
3: if it's bad now is it going to get worse in years to come uh, because uh, You've been looking at the number of people who are renting property rather than owning their own homes. These are people aged between 50 and 64.
8: Yes. So there's nearly 10% of people aged 50 to 64 renting in 2022. And between census 2016 and census 2022, the absolute number of older renters has doubled. So there's a trend there um and we know that more of us will be renting when we're older and currently the irish pension system relies on us being homeowners to reduce the cost for you know a supplementary payment such as the housing assistance payment the hap so we know that there's There's going to be a number of us relying on the state for our housing needs in older age, and that's a very precarious situation for many older people, particularly those in their 50s now renting, who are looking at possibly exiting the labour force at 66 or coming up to 70. Um, And what will their situation be? And nobody wants to be looking for a home to rent Mm. in their 70s and 80s. Um, And at any age, it's very difficult, but particularly because of ageism and other factors there. And we all want to age in place. And I know we've talked about this a lot, you know, the idea that we want to age in the home or at least in the community in which we've built our lives. And so that is very difficult to do if you're renting.
3: Mm. Yeah, and the bills don't stop uh, for that matter. A lot of people are very concerned uh, about an unexpected bill for that matter.
8: Well, absolutely. Like, we all worry, um, you know, and try and have a rainy day fund. But if you're on a a pension um, and a very fixed income, it's very difficult to accumulate savings. And what we, our survey has shown that a fifth of older couples um, and two fifths of older persons living alone couldn't cope with a once-off cost of €1,200. So this is the boiler breaking down, the roof a leak in the roof, some other, you know, something goes wrong with the car particularly in a rural area where you need to keep your car on the road um, or a a large medical expense or something um, and people couldn't cope with that um, and so this is a a great difficulty particularly for older people trying to maintain their homes um, not being able to find 1200 euro and so you end up maybe trying to get a loan um, and if people are lucky enough to have savings in the credit union and can get a loan but there's very few options for older people to get access to credit.
3: Hmm. Can they go to the Community Welfare Officer in those circumstances?
8: Yeah, so the additional needs payment is there. um, And we saw in our research, um, a lot of people relied on the additional needs payment from the Department of Social Protection. Last year, but unfortunately, um, you know, housing related costs were a significant amount, nearly 2.5 million in additional needs payments was put out for that. 2 million, sadly, for funeral costs, Um, but help with bills with less than €120,000 allocated because, you know, you're means tested for it and uh, you have to present as in need. And a lot of older people we find um, in Age Action don't want to go to the Department of Social Welfare looking for what they call a handout. What they want is state pension to be adequate to meet needs and for access to public services to be available where they need them um, and then they'll manage.
3: Um, We're all going to um, be uh, put into pension schemes uh, and uh, there'll be an opt-out. Is that part of uh, the solution to this, uh, that people make provision themselves uh, through private pensions?
8: Well, you know, for eradication of poverty, there's two things. Decent work, decent pay and a strong social protection system. So where people have decent jobs with decent pay um, and going into an auto enrolled pension as it's called, that's good. But for those people who don't have a decent job and a decent pay, that is going to be a struggle. And we're particularly concerned for people in low paid work. And that's mostly women and people like sort of in work such as caring and in the retail sector where the pay is very low. And so that's going to be difficult for those people to meet that auto enrollment payment into the pension. That said, it is really, really important that we all think about what our lives are going to be like in older age and plan for it and make provision for it mm. um and and where we can you know access a private pension or an occupational pension those people definitely fare better than mm. those who are reliant on the state pension and we can see that very much in the experience of older people now yeah. with um 1 in 10 at risk of poverty 1 in 3 living alone at risk of poverty like it is quite serious
3: Yeah, very stark Indeed, as as you say on this International Day for the Eradication of Poverty Dignity for All in Practice is uh, the theme from uh, the United Nations uh, and, and indeed uh, it resonates uh, listening to some of uh, the data and statistics uh, that you've outlined for us this morning, Celine. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Public Affairs with Age Action Ireland. Michael,
1: Michael Reid on, on LMFM. Time now,
3: as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr joins us for this week. Week's report from Navan Garda station and a, a very good morning to you we're going to begin with a robbery that occurred in Trim.
9: Good morning Michael Um on Sunday the 15th of October shortly after 5 p.m. at the of service station between Trim and Navan a man entered the shop uh, from the side entrance with his face covered and wearing gloves. Now he ran behind the counter brandishing a large blade and he shouted aggressively at the staff member until they opened the till. So the man then took money from two tills. He then left through the side entrance that he came in. Now he left the scene in a silver vehicle, believed to be a silver Vauxhall insignia. Now this was an extremely serious incident. Now Thankfully, there were no members of staff or customers that were hurt or injured during this ordeal. So the Guardian trim are investigating this and are appealing to listeners this morning if they were in the vicinity of the top garage in Bechtes and recall seeing anything unusual or perhaps they saw a silver Vauxhall insignia acting suspiciously any information on this, please contact Trim Garda Station or, as always, there's the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 treble one.
3: Next to Drogheda, where a car has been stolen.
9: Yeah, in the early hours of Monday the 16th, approximately 5 to 5.30am, the injured party in this case heard a noise at the front of the house and they looked out the window and saw their car being reversed out of their driveway. So the injured party was unable to get a look at or to get a description of who was driving The keys uh, of the vehicle remained in the house and the car was locked. This incident occurred in Beechmount Avenue in Drogheda and the Drogheda Guardi are investigating. So anyone who may have seen a silver Nissan March 09LH in the vicinity of Beechmount Avenue in Drogheda in the early hours of Monday the 16th, that's yesterday morning, to please contact Drogheda Guard station.
3: You have uh, another burglary dial, so you're appealing for information on, uh, but this one resulted in two cars being stolen in Navan.
9: That's right. On the 13th of October, that's Friday last, between the hours of 12.30am and 8.30am at St Bridget's Villas in Navan, the injured party in this case woke to find the rear door of his house had been damaged and two vehicles taken. Now, the rear door was forced open to gain entry and the keys of both vehicles were taken in this instance. The first vehicle that was taken was a white Volvo XC60 162MH and the second vehicle was a beige-coloured Fiat Bravo 08D. So somebody may have noticed one or both of these vehicles between the hours of 12.30 and 8.30 a.m. on Friday last. So perhaps anyone listening who may have been in the Navan area during these times and has dashcam footage could check their footage for these two vehicles, a white Volvo XC60 and a beige-coloured Fiat Bravo. So Navan and are investigating this and would appreciate anybody's help um, that the public may have.
3: Garda. Fiona Kerr, thank you indeed for joining us from Navangarda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now before we go, some more of the comments that have been coming to us and thank you Jane for taking the time to ring us. Jane says 3 million euro won't be even make a dent in the funding requirements of local community projects. It's just a drop in the ocean. Government need to prioritise spending and show appreciation of the important work that is done by community groups and projects. Andy on the same subject says it's a disgrace that only 3 million has been allocated to community projects when we are giving so much money out in aid to people overseas. How can government find the money to ship off to other countries but can't source it to fund important projects here? I think a lot more than 3 million is being given uh, to community projects uh, but this is 3 million from the proceeds of crime. Uh, On that subject somebody says uh, in a, a text message to us, Mike the authorities in Louth and beyond are ignoring the and report. Will those who are allocated this funding actually account for every cent of it? What about all of the other initiatives uh, that the report recommended? Drogheda people are still suffering From the feud. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Betty Daly texting us saying, Hi Michael, just listening uh, about the people giving our older people, giving out about older people having a four bedroom house. What about a single young mother who only wants a three bedroomed house beside their mother when a one bed flat is big enough for a mother and an infant for a few years at least, says Betty. Uh, Navin Listener in County Mead says a home is a home Where you grew up in as a child, it doesn't uh, make any difference uh, if you're older. um, It it might need new windows or cookers, um, but the family grew up together and should be able to stay together. uh, And thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Liam has been in touch with us saying Ireland is not a, a country. That is older people friendly. Everything here is geared towards younger people. Tech savvy generations and older people are being edged out of society more and more on a weekly basis. Leem says that the government, businesses and society in general need to remember that the current society stands on the shoulders of the people who went before them and who made this country what it is. It's uh, the height of disrespect To treat older people as if they are disposable now just because they've gotten older. Well, thank you indeed, Liam, for that. Uh, Thanks to to Jane, who's uh, been uh, in touch, too, about the idea of having to downsize your house if you're 55 or older. She says, how can people be asked to move out of their homes? A house is not just bricks and mortar. A house is home for most people and that's the way uh, that we lived in the house and we hope that we will die at home well thank you indeed for your message to the programme as well now that has to be the final word on our programme today because our time has run out on us once again but before we go thanks as always to Maggie McGuire who researched the programme today and Chris Murray who was in the control tower I'm Michael God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFN good morning